A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And of course, Johnny goes nuts. So I'm getting curious about thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you make the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode three. Thanks for joining me. Go to inallairness.com for show notes and plenty more features. The social hub for the podcast is facebook.com slash inallairness. If you haven't already, please like the page and join the growing community of fans. Add the podcast to your RSS feed or iTunes so you never miss another show. It's also available on Stitcher, BlackBerry, Player FM, TuneIn Radio and numerous other podcatchers. I love hearing from listeners. On either site, you can send voicemail, comments or questions. With your permission, I'd love to include your feedback on future episodes. You can follow me on Twitter at InAllAirness. My guest today has a basketball resume like a few others. His name is synonymous with the Duke Blue Devils. Simply mention the shot and you instantly think of arguably the greatest finish to possibly the greatest game in college basketball history. He had a strong 13-year NBA career and, just for good measure, was the only non-NBA player on the 92 Dream Team. Christian Leitner, thanks for joining me. You're welcome, Adam. My pleasure. Uh, throughout your career, Christian, would it be fair for me to say that you exhibited a hard-nosed, in-your-face style of play against uh, opposition and even, at times, fellow teammates? Well, I think uh, to a certain degree you have to have that type of hard-nosed mentality to be a very, very good player and to to play in the NBA for 13 years and have a successful NBA career. Um, you have to be hard-nosed like that. And in college, um, we were all younger and, uh, you know, juniors and seniors have to more vocal and show some more leadership uh, capabilities and it's demanded from you so you know Coach K really uh, stressed that to us all the time and he kind of he kind of you know let it mature and grow as as we got older so yes I was definitely hard on um, my fellow teammates at Duke Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time I think uh, holding each other accountable like that um made us ultra successful because my freshman year everyone did it to me my sophomore year everyone did it to me and then junior senior year it was my turn uh to do it to everybody else and um you know when you get to the nba you don't have to do that as much because everyone is as good as you or better than you mm-hmm. so there doesn't need to be 
that much from the players because you have to be uh, brothers and so close because you're together so much. Yep. And that has to that has to be facilitated from the coach more in the NBA. Um, the players you have to be just kind and nice and love each other all the time and uh, not push push each other like maybe you did in college. So yeah, um, it was definitely part definitely part of the part of the game in college. And um, you know Bobby Hurley was so important to our team because he's the quarterback, he's the point guard, he has the ball all the time. Yeah, and um, he was so he was so good and. Any any time he wasn't good, I might have mentioned it. And uh, <laughs> and when I when I when I wasn't maybe so good, he mentioned it to me. And and we all did it to each other. And I think that's why we were so good though the four years I was at Duke is because we all held each other accountable. Yeah, sure. Now the longtime voice of the Blue Devils, Bob Davis, he recently told me via Twitter that you were such a fierce competitor. And, and that's obvious as well from just watching your games too, even from over here in Australia. Where did that drive and will to win come from, Christian? Well, a lot of it is innate because I have an older brother who's four years older. So my whole life until I was, uh, you know, 14, he beat me up and rubbed it in my face and <laughs> beat me at every game, every game, sport, little silly, stupid game you can think of uh, and rubbed it in my face and and and. So I learned to hate to lose uh, because my older brother and uh, really competitive because of him. And then once I got to Duke, it was really encouraged. And Coach K, you know, would use that as, you know, come on, we got to be more competitive. We got to be fierce competitors out there. So I loved it and I took it to her heart. For sure. So that obviously kept you in good stead for when your uh, college and uh, NBA days came along. Now, I've read numerous articles about your playing days at Duke and your occasionally strained relationship with Bobby Hurley, who you just mentioned a moment ago. Was it actually as difficult as it was made out to be, your relationship between the two of you? Yeah, you know, I don't know. There there was times, you know, here and there when, uh, you know, we would bicker at each other. And, um, you know, I was a, a little rough on all the guys. And Antonio Lang, when he was a freshman, I was a I was a junior and we really needed him to perform on the court even though he was a freshman. So, mm-hmm. you know, we had we had to toughen him up a little bit, and I'll never forget how they toughened me up when I was a freshman. Danny Ferry and Ahal Abdinabi and John Smith and Robert Bricky and all those guys. Sure, sure. So uh, obviously, just something that happens between teammates and it does it does bring out the best in people. I'm sure. Now we'll get to your heroics versus the Kentucky Wildcats in the '92 NCAA tournament. But perhaps lost on some people was a, a very similar end to another game two years prior, also in the East Regional Finals. It was your Duke Blue Devils against the Yukon Huskies. You're in overtime. There was 2.6 seconds left. You inbounded the ball, which was quickly passed back to you. And when time expired, or just as time expired, you hit the game winner. Now, had that missed, it would have been game over. Can you just run us through your recollection of that game, please? Well, I'm glad you mentioned it because a lot of people seem to forget about that shot. <laughs> but that was that was also something I'm very proud of, and uh, that was the bu- buzzer beater I hit my sophomore year, and um, just a wonderful feeling because that was the very first time, and I'll never forget how how much my heart just leapt when I screamed after I made the shot. My heart just left my body because I was so happy, <laughs> and um, yeah. And we celebrated, and that was the first one. And uh, what happened was, uh, when I was a freshman, 
Danny Ferry would take the ball out on the side, and Coach K had this audible called special where uh, if he if he noticed that no one was guarding the inbounder who was Danny Ferry, he would he would change the play that he drew up and called special, mm-hmm. and do an audible, and Danny would throw it to the closest guy, get it back, and come in and take the last shot, you know, for the for the quarter or the end of half shot or the end of game shot. So. When I was a sophomore, I was put in that position because I was a good passer. So that was the next year after Danny graduated. And, um, you know, we're in that game. It's overtime, 2.6 seconds left. Uh, you remember the guy on their team almost stole the ball on Bobby's pass? You remember that? Yeah, yeah. I can't think of his name. Eddie, not Eddie George. Eddie, not Eddie George. So Bobby threw a pass on the break, you know, going for our last shot, and he almost stole it, but it slipped through his hands and went out of bounds. So we got the ball back. Coach K drew up a play. We went to this to run it. The ref hands me the ball, and Coach K says special and changes the play at the last second. Mm-hmm. So I throw it to a teammate. He throws it back. I take one dribble and just take a double pump, you know, shot and throw it up, and it goes in. Just unbelievable feeling, unbelievable circumstance. Yeah, an amazing shot for sure. Now, the name of that person that you're talking about has escapes me at the moment, but I do recall the play because I just recently watched the game again and some of your highlights before we uh, had a chat. And also with that shot as well, you, you've got an incredible record of having four consecutive years in the Final Four. Two of those years were only because of buzzer-beating shots in overtime that you hit. So it's a pretty remarkable record in itself. <laughs> well, thank you. No problem at all. Okay. Speaking of the 89-90 season, I'd just like to have a quick chat about the UNLV versus Duke. Probably a game you don't want me to talk too much about. But the running Rebels were stacked with some future NBA players, including Larry Johnson, Stacey Yorgman, and Greg Anthony, who were all first-round draft picks that year. Now, obviously, the result wasn't in your favour, but what are your memories of that championship game? My memories is that we were a very, very good team, but... We just ran into the running Rebels, and they were an unbelievably great team. Mm. And um, we were kind of young. I was a sophomore. Bobby was a freshman. And we just couldn't handle their pressure. And they blew us out by 30, and it was embarrassing. But, um, you know, you try to learn, live and learn from your mistakes. And, um, you know, I think we did. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of living and learning, that leads in beautifully to the next point, which is 1990-91. Now, you had a rematch in the Final Four against UNLV. Now, you guys were the underdogs. UNLV was still 34-0 heading into the game. However, your Blue Devils held on to win by two points. That said, how satisfying was that victory following the large defeat and the disappointment the year prior? Well, that's a good question. We, uh, it was a huge, a huge game for us, a huge opportunity to you know, right the wrong from last year where we got embarrassed. We got ran off the court and lost by 30 points. Um, the thing that really helped, helped us, Adam, is that we had a whole week to prepare for him this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the year before, we beat Arkansas in the Final Four game and then played UNLV in the Final We only had 18 hours to prepare for him. Yeah. The following year, we had a whole week, and Coach K came up with a great game plan and a great defensive scheme and really good offensive stuff. Uh, and we practiced seven against five at times that week. You know, it would be the starters against uh, the second team. We'd give them two extra guys, so seven against five, just to okay. try to 
just to try to simulate, uh, you know, the runner rebel defensive pressure. Sure. So, so we went into that game and played the game of our lives and we won and we just barely won because that's how good they were. Mm. But we, we thought we had a little, you know, ace in our pocket, uh, which was game pressure because they were 34 and all. They hadn't been in any close games all year and we thought that if we can get them in a tight game, we might have some type of advantage because, uh, we've been in some, you know, close games. Uh, a great result and you hung on to win your first championship with Duke. Now, you advanced to the championship game and defeated Mark Randall, uh, who was later picked by the Chicago Bulls. Uh, you beat the Kansas Jayhawks, and you took out the most outstanding player uh, honours in that championship game. Can you just describe briefly for us the emotions of winning that first uh, NCAA championship? It was just the greatest feeling ever. Uh, you know, when you think of all the blood, sweat, and tears, and all the dedication to the game to try to get there and fighting through things, and being hard on, on, on your brothers that you love, on your team, and demanding a lot from them, and, and it all comes to fruition to where you, you get that ultimate prize. It's just the greatest feeling ever. So uh, we love it, and, um, you know, some of the greatest pride you can ever feel giving Duke their first championship. Definitely. Now, the 91-92 season, your Duke team were maybe the most publicized and sought-after team in all the sports. And I've since heard a great line from Coach K where he said at one point, in order to get Bobby Hurley onto a team bus at one stage, he had to be put inside a, <laughs> an equipment bag and carried onto the bus. So firstly, is that true? And can you just describe how intense the media scrutiny and fan attention was at that time? Well, you know, that happened in Buffalo, New York, which is where I'm from, where I grew up. Yeah. And... Uh, they said it happened, and the place, the place was going crazy because we were there, and I was there, and they loved it. And I don't really remember it totally, uh, but everyone says it happened, and if, if they don't say it happened, then I guess it happened. But, um, you know, I, I was I was in my own little mob scene at that point, too, and I might have heard it after the fact, but I just don't remember it. It was such a crazy time. Yeah, for sure. Now, obviously, you would have been probably mobbed at almost every arena and practice session, and there'd be people uh, wanting to chat with you all over the place. So I can only imagine how crazy and, and hectic it must have been at that time. But what was the second part of the question? The the fan attention and um, the media scrutiny. How how did you find that at the during that ninety one ninety two season, which would be your um, your senior year? The fanfare was crazy, and it was awesome, and uh, it was a lot of fun, and, uh, you know, it, it was all positive at that time, so it was wonderful. Fantastic. Now, this gets me to most likely the, the thing that you're most known for, March 28, 1992, the East Regional Final. It's a game I'm sure you're reminded of very often. Just allow me to set the scene for a moment. It's overtime. Duke down by one point inbounding the ball from the other end of the floor. You catch Grant Hill's uh, amazing 75-foot pass, shoulder fake left, dribble right, swiveled left and release, and then you swished arguably the most incredible game-winning shot in basketball history. Now, there was maybe three-tenths of a second remaining when the ball left your hand. When Coach K drew up that last play, can you actually recall what your emotions were in the huddle, given that if you had lost that game, it would have been your final game in college well in terms of the psyche uh in the huddle 
you know, we've been training for four years to maybe get down to the situation or get too excited about the situation or get too anxious and nervous. So you've been training for that. Mm-hmm. And you train for that by, you know, Coach K.O. just say, go on to the next play, go to the next play. So we just really get caught on a quick timeout, you know, when Sean Wood made his shot. The best, the best thing we did is we would call it an immediate timeout. So that saved us a few split seconds. Sure. And then, and it's all training. Coach K puts us through all this all the time in, uh, in practice. He calls it end of game situations and end of quarter situations. So we practice stuff like this. So we call it a good timeout. We got to, we got to the huddle. He immediately tried to infuse us with some positive, uh, thoughts and he said, okay, we're going to win this game. And, I had been trained to believe everything that man says. Yeah, sure. So, so you know, he's he's trying to get us to that point. That, you know, every day that he works with us, believe in what I say, believe in what I say. So when he said it, I believed in what he said. I said, okay, we're going to win this game. How are we going to do it? Drop, you know, drop the play. Well, he's drawn up the play, and we're going to run a play called home run, and it didn't work three weeks earlier when we did it in Wake Forest because Grant threw a curveball. So for three weeks, we were working on it. We were working on his passing and practice. And, um, you know, lo and behold, here we are. We got to run that play. So he said, run home run and, and look for Christian at the top of the key, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Bob, Bobby's over here. Thomas is over here. Anthony Tony Lang is over here. Grant, can you make the pass? Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. Positive reinforcement. So... We go out there and we run it, and, and the last thought that I think is you got 2.1 seconds, you know, you don't have to rush if you get the ball. Mm. It, doesn't, it doesn't have to be a blind, a blind heave. You can, catch, you, you can catch it and you can make a move and you don't have to rush it so much. So that's the last thought I had. Sure. And I ran up there and Grant through the pass. And the most critical thing is that the most critical thing of the whole play is that I caught the ball. Yeah. Because if 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 there's no catch, you know, there's no there's no shot. There's no Kentucky Leitner shot. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, definitely. So uh, I I think that's the most critical thing that I did out of the whole play. Now the most critical thing overall might have been the pass. Mm-hmm. You know, the the great pass by Grant, and like I said. We trained on all that stuff. We, I trained on last second shot. Grant trained on his pass because uh, we failed at it. Like I said, three weeks earlier in Wake Forest when we lost. Yeah. So then I, so then I went up big and strong, and I got the ball in my hands. And when I came down, I just made a basketball move, uh, like a post move from 17 feet, and I faked one way and spun the other way and let it go and. When it went out of my hands, I said, oh, it looks like it's good. But, you you know, sometimes you're not 100% sure. Yeah. Sometimes sometimes you shoot the ball and you know that you know it's in. Sometimes you shoot and you're like, I'm not sure, and it goes in. So when it left my hand, I was like, it felt pretty good. I hope it goes, and it went in. So Amazing. An amazing end to an amazing game as well. And it was quite incredible that in the 2.1 seconds, you managed to still... After the catch, you threw in a fake a dribble, turn around, and then still released a, a virtually a perfect shot, which got nothing but net. So, even more incredible. Now, was it tempting to think about the what if I make this shot 
scenario before the, the home run play was actually called, or is that just something that wouldn't even enter your mind at that stage? Well, you have to train yourself not to think ahead and to live in, in the very, very moment that you're in. You can't let yourself think ahead because then if you think ahead, you get too excited. Yeah, sure. Do you understand? So yeah, that that's a hard that's a hard discipline to have to say I'm not gonna think about it and oh man, if I hit it and get all excited because then that excitement throws you off. Yeah. So I I would not let that enter my mind. I just stayed very focused on being in the moment. What do I got to do? I got to run up there and catch the ball. What do I do after that? Give it my best effort. And, and who, you know, and if it goes in, it goes in. If it doesn't, you know, it doesn't. Yeah. No, I can uh, I can only imagine the, the amount of pressure that was on was on you as the recipient of the pass from Grand Hill. Even when I'm playing local basketball over <laughs> over here in Australia, if it gets to the last 30 seconds or so, I just start to lose the plot and my hands start sweating, so I'd have no chance. <laughs> well, well, now, now you know at least what positive type of thoughts to try to be uh, implementing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think I'll just stick to, to following the game and really enjoying watching the professionals do, the, do their stuff. Bobby Hurley up the floor with Leitner. They throw it to the left of the floor. Leitner catches, comes down, dribbles, shoots, scores! Christian Leitner has hit the bucket at the buzzer! Now, this famous shot that you hit then helped Duke get to the championship game against the Michigan Wolverines. The Fab Five, including Chris Webber, Jalen Rose, Jawan Howard and company. Uh, Michigan were up by one point at the half, but you guys stormed home and outscored the Wolverines 41-20 to in the second half en route to your second NCAA championship, so back-to-back. Can you just describe your emotions? It was your last game at Duke. The 1992 NBA draft was not far away, and also the possibility of uh, even a possible dream team call up too. Well, winning the second championship was just um, another unbelievably great feeling. Like I said about, you know, if you have two kids, you love the first one and you love the second one. You love them both uh, the same, just beyond beyond belief. So. Mm. Unbelievable, unbelievably proud feeling, and then it was especially hard because it was back to back. So we were getting everyone's best shot by far of the year, and um, to withstand it all and win a championship it was just a great feeling. But we were a very, very good team. Yep, definitely. Now with the Fab Five there, and and Weber, Howard, Jalen Rose, those those guys, you must have you played what one or two seasons against them before you turned pro. Yes, yes, yes. We played them in December my senior year, and then we played them in the Final Four in the championship game. Yeah, sure. So so how was that really going up against a team of uh, up-and-coming players who were obviously very uh, hyped and had a lot of media attention? They, they were, they, yeah, they were, they were uh, very hyped and very deserving of it. They were a very good team. They could have beaten anyone, but we were just a buzzsaw at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were we were too good for really anyone to beat us at that point, and they hung with us in the first half. But the second half, we just demolished them because we had more experience. Um, but they were a great team, and they were they were all freshmen, and uh, you know the, the underdog, and the whole country loved them. 
Well, you guys, Duke definitely overrun them in the second half, so it was, it was great to see you had back-to-back championships. Now, just before we talk a little bit of NBA, can you just indulge me for a moment and reminisce about the 1992 Olympics and your spot on the famed Dream Team? What's your greatest memory or, or moment, and either on court or off, of playing on a team that was stacked with perhaps the greatest amount of talent the world has, has ever seen? Well, it was just the the luckiest thing that could happen to me at that point in my life. Uh, just I was really hot right at the right time at the ro- right moment. Sure. Coming off coming off back to back national championships, and um, I had spent my time with uh, the the U.S. Olympic organization. I was on the world team, the Pan Am team, so I was committed to the to the cause, if you know what I mean. Yes. And um, that's where I used to play against Andrew Gaze and Luke Longley and all those all those down under guys. Oh yeah, excellent. That's the first time I ever ran into Luke, and um, I had uh, played against Andrew Gaze when he was at UConn, and then I saw him a few times uh, in the World Games and all that, all that good stuff. So so then I was on the team, and my, my fondest memory, uh, besides winning the gold medal for my country, Adam, is all the time I got to spend with those pro players uh, playing ping pong, playing one-on-one. Chris Mullen and I went uh, jet skiing one day in the Mediterranean. I just had a great time with all those guys. They were all so nice to me, and it was the time of my life. Oh, fantastic. Sounds like it was uh, an incredible experience, and then it was capped off with a a gold medal for your for your country, which is uh, arguably very hard to beat. If you had to choose, or could you choose, um, would it be the two NCAA titles or the gold medal that holds the dearest part in your heart? The dearest to me would probably be the NCAA championships because I was more of a crucial cog in, in, in those things. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. On, the, on the dream team, it was awesome. It was time of my life um but they would have won the gold if you were on the team if you know what i mean <laughs> well if i stayed on the bench they would have that's for sure <laughs> but um you know they they were so good i i didn't play i had no effect on the outcomes of the game but it was a great opportunity and a great experience for me um but the way you asked the question uh the things that are dear to me are are the champ the two championships yeah, I can understand that for sure. Now, one of my uh, Twitter followers, Tom Reed, he's asked about that scrimmage in Monte Carlo, the one that was dubbed uh, the greatest game nobody ever saw. Now, right, the, right. Or of that game, it showed that the Jordan-led uh, white team prevailed over your uh, Charles Barkley-led blue team, 40 to 36. Looking at the box score, you had a great game, uh, 10 points, just one shy of uh, Barkley's 11 points, and you had four boards as well. What what do you actually recall from the matchup, and did the recent Dream Team documentary rekindle some very fond memories for you? The documentary was awesome. I loved it. Uh, I thought they spent maybe a little too much. I thought it could have been longer. Yeah, I would have loved that too. And then, and then, and then I also thought they spent a little too much time on the whole Isaiah Thomas issue. So, uh, but it was really fun, and it, it did uh, rekindle some memories and. Um, about that scrimmage, uh, you know, it was easy to play with those guys. Uh, for me, no one ever paid attention to me, so all I had to do was <laughs> stand near the bucket with my hands up and be ready to catch, like, a bullet pass from 
you know, Bird or Johnson or Stockton, any of the guys. I mean, they would just hook me up, hook me up under the bucket because, you know, they're all paying attention to the other 11 guys who are, who are NBA all-stars. So it was easy for me and I'm sure all my shots were layups (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, and it, it was a lot of fun. I remember it getting a little silly at the end because uh, people started going one-on-one too much. Mm-hmm. And Chuck, da- Chuck Daly kind of uh, called, called it like, that's enough. But um, it got a little too heated, a little too much one-on-one, a little too much ball, ball hogging. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, I did, yeah. So, so he called it, and it was a lot of fun. And um, we might have... Tried it. We tried it again the next day, or maybe two days later, and it was even more heated and uh, more ball hogging. So he had to even cut it shorter. So right. he, he started. He, he was like, "All right, we're ready. Let, let's go in the goal." Yeah, sure. No, that's a, that's a great preparation, there, no doubt. I think you're talking yourself down a bit there by just saying you were scoring layups because you had a really nice uh, mid-range jumper as well, and and would hit the occasional three-pointer too. So you could still hit from outside as well. No, I know. Yeah, I'm joshing myself a little bit. Um, but I'll tell you, it was it was it, it was so easy, and it was a lot like when I was um, 14. When I was 14 years old, I would play with like my dad's 35 year old team. You know, his league, his old man's league. Okay, yeah. And, and and it was just like that, where I had to uh, just keep my hands up and be ready to catch the ball and. If I caught it, just laid it in or shoot a really wide-open shot. So it was easy basketball. Yeah. Now, just talking about that there, when you're 14 years old, how tall would you have been at 14? Because obviously you're you're 6'11", but at 14 you still may have been quite tall, I'm imagining. Well, when I was 15 and a half, I was the size I am now, 6'11". So um, I was probably, you know, 6'8", at at 6'7", 6'8", at 14. So you would have been throwing down some, would you have been doing a few dunks at that stage or would you just um, play it safe and just done layups? Uh, just starting to maybe at 14, yes. Okay, excellent. There you go. Now, just going forward, after you got back from uh, winning gold in, in Barcelona, you were then going to be playing for the Timberwolves. You were picked at number three in a 92 NBA draft by Minnesota and your draft class also famously featured Shaquille O'Neal and Alonzo Mourning who were picked at number one and number two. As a rookie, you averaged some great numbers, uh, 18 points a game, nine boards, three assists, so some really great numbers on a, on a lottery team, and you earned yourself a all-rookie first-team selection. How was the adjustment entering the NBA, uh, coming off the highs of having back-to-back NCAA championships and then also playing on the Dream Team and then suiting up to play for the T-Wolves? Well, I loved every instant that I was in the NBA for 13 years, and I, and I especially loved my time in Minnesota and playing for the Timberwolves. Um, I had a I had a good rookie year, um, but you start to real you know you realize right away that uh, winning in the NBA depends on your team power, your your power as a team, not not just one or two players. So yeah. Um, we might have been, we might have been, you know, not the most talented team, and we didn't win that many games. I think we only won twenty games or something like that. So it was really hard. Mm-hmm. And um, but I, I was starting to play great basketball with some great guys, and I think 
I think Luke was on the team my freshman year. I mean, my rookie year uh, with the T Wolves. Yeah. And and Doug and Doug West and Felton Spencer and um, Chuck Person and Michael Williams and all these guys. So it was just a great time, and I had a absolute blast, even though we weren't very successful. And um, starting a starting a friendship and a relationship with Luke and. Uh, you know, we still we still stay in touch maybe once a year, but when he was uh when we were both playing a few years ago, uh stayed in touch a lot more. Yeah, excellent. Now that um leads in nicely to this next little question. Just a quick aside. Uh you played probably just a little over one season, perhaps with Luke Longley. Now, do you have any stories or any recollections about Australia's first ever uh, NBA product? <laughs> um, yes, he's as big <laughs> as a wall. He's as big as a wall, and uh, you you just can't imagine how he is, especially like across his back and his shoulders. He's just the biggest person. <laughs> and also the coolest, best guy, just the best person. So uh, I love I love Luke. I still do love Luke. And... Um, my fondest memories with Luke are stuff off the court. Like, um, I would go over, to, his apartment was just like three blocks away from practice from the arena. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes I'd go over there and we'd eat lunch or we'd go get some Buffalo style chicken wings. And, and he was just, he was a real person, you know, he, he cooked his own meals sometimes and did some of his laundry and got some dry clean. So I learned some of the NBA ways and how to uh, be an adult man uh, from Luke when I was uh, with him on the Timberwolves. And um, he taught me some stuff about driving. I'll never forget one time we were driving his car and he was, you know, trying to teach us some things about driving and show, show me the way around the roads in Minnesota. So just a great guy. And uh, we had a lot of fun together. Uh, that's good. That's a nice insight there. Thanks for that. I always like to try and just have a relate it back to some of the Australian players like Andrew Gaze and Luke Longley and that sort of stuff just to make it a bit more personal. Based on, on numbers and individual achievements, I'd say that 1997 would have been your best season as a pro. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you were a star on the Atlanta Hawks. You played all 82 regular season games. You had your first all-star game appearance and you made it to the second round of the playoffs before being defeated by uh, Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, who were on their way to their second title in a row, uh, their fifth in seven seasons. Can you just perhaps talk about that season with Atlanta and where it actually does rate with you? Yes, um, that that season was my all-star season. And, we, and, and the reason I shined bright on that team in Atlanta is because I was surrounded by great players. Um, I was able to play my intended position in pros, which is power forward. I didn't have to play much center. Why? Because Dikembe Mutombo was there. Exactly, yeah. And Dikembe is just an incredible center. And um, I was always a little bit of an undersized center. And um, so four, four man is my best position, and I played it all year. And I think Dikembe played every game or only missed a few games. So I was really successful because of him. And another reason was Mookie Blaylock and Steve Smith, two great one and two guards um, who got us out on the fast break and got us easy buckets and can really shoot the ball. And, you know, Mookie's a great defender too, so we got a lot of fast break points. Yeah, sure. 
sort of led me nicely into my next question, which is about that team and some of the starters you play with. You're surrounded by Steve Smith, uh, Mookie Blaylock and Dikembe, as we said, and also Ty Corbin. Uh, as an outsider looking in, your team seemed to be having a really good time whilst also you know, knuckling down and, and playing hard. So how did you find the mix of personalities and talent on that 97 uh, Hawks team? It was awesome. It was very easy. It was one of the easiest situations I've been in in the NBA where we were all very professional and, and determined and disciplined, and we were well coached by Lenny Wilkins, who's just a wonderful coach to play for, very easy to play for. Mm-hmm. Um, there was times when I wanted Lenny to yell at us a little more and, and hold us all a, a little more accountable. Okay. <laughs> but Lenny is, Lenny is a smooth, a smooth operating coach and, um, very easy to play on that team. And I, and I loved it. I thought they, I thought they broke us up a little too fast. Yeah. No, it was a great team to watch. And uh, yeah, I did enjoy the, the mix of, of personalities and players on that team from games that I watched back in that era. Now I've got, Two words for you. I'm sure you've heard them both before. Michael Jordan. You played with him on the Dream Team and then also for two seasons at the, the Washington Wizards, his final two seasons in the NBA, and I guess also the, the 97 All-Star Game as well. Can you please just talk a little about MJ and describe a few lasting memories or experiences of playing with him compared to perhaps playing against him? Well, the first is that I beat him in ping pong at least two games, <laughs> and uh, you can read all about that in Jack McCallum's book. Yes, and and he didn't like that because he's he's ultra competitive. But sure. I'm just too good at I'm just too good at ping pong. I played <laughs> a lot of it in my life, and um, so that was a lot of fun. And then the other super fun memory I have of Jordan is that uh, one time in practice I caught the ball for the dream team. This is on the dream team. Mm-hmm. One time I caught it in practice and I faced up and Jordan was in front of me and uh, I jabbed fake and he's so quick he kind of beat me to the spot. <laughs> but but it, but it made me it made me make a really good move where I jabbed fake and he kind of bit at it so I, so I went by him and as I'm going by him I'm like oh I just I got by Michael Jordan, you know, because it never happened. Yeah, few and far between, I'm sure. So I'm really happy that I'm getting by Michael Jordan, right? And as I go up to lay lay it in, David Robinson just comes over and beats it up and into my face. <laughs> so that that reinforced that whole theory of don't get too happy, don't get too excited, because uh, you know the next moment, the next play, someone might beat your shot up like Robinson did. So so that's another fond memory. And then, you know, those that's two little ones that I can give you, Adam, but I mean, there's a million of them. I played with the guy for two years in, uh, in Washington. It's just a great experience. And I played playing against him, playing against him when he was on the Bulls. And I was in Atlanta, you know, and they knocked us out of the playoffs. And I mean, those were great games. And I think I, I, think I had my career high against the Bulls one time. Okay, yeah, good. So you've got uh, yeah, plenty, of, plenty of memories, no doubt. Given the the varied comeback attempts by players who have who are, who came into the league just a few years after you were a rookie, and I'm thinking of Michael Finley most recently, did you ever consider or seriously consider making a comeback to the NBA following your retirement from the Miami Heat back in 2005? You know, I I considered it because uh, some teams called me. Uh, I you know. So my last year was 04, 05. Well, in the fall of 05, when the season's starting and I'm not there, 
you know, a few of them called and said, Christian, you know, come try out. So I considered it. Um, and then the following year also, my second year out, they were still calling me. So that was really flattering and, 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 and honoring that they were still calling me two years later. And, um, you know, Adam, I considered it, but I couldn't do it. My back doctor was saying, Christian, you know, if your back goes out again, you can you can be in trouble. So I had to take his advice. And um, my last year in the league, 0405 in Miami, my back went out twice. And it, it took a, a month for it to recover both times. So the, the season's seven months long, and two of the months were wasted because my back went out. So I just decided that I'd better shut it down because I want to be able to stand up straight the rest of my life. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, that's that's for sure. So, so, so I shut it down a little early. I would have loved to play two or three more years. In retrospect, looking back on it, hindsight, I sh- I I still should have done it. Um, <laughs> who, who cares what it does to your to my back? If I can't if I can't stand up straight when I'm 55, so what? But I should have done it. I didn't. Um, I feel bad about it because I miss it. I love it. It's, it was the greatest time of my life playing in the league. Yeah. And you re- you really, really miss it. And I should have forced an- another two years, but um, my body and my back is happy that I didn't. I can imagine that is the case. You can just tell, just even by listening to that answer there, that you obviously are a big-time competitor. And, and even now, some, what, seven years on, you're uh, still you know thinking back to what you could have offered some other teams. So that's good to, good to hear. Well, you just you just miss it. You love the time on the court um, when the ball's in movement. You don't necessarily like the traveling and the the working out and the early hours and the crazy hours and the wear and tear on the body. But yeah, you love the, you love the game. You miss the games. Yeah, sure. You did some TV work earlier this year at the London Olympics, looking out for Fox Sports, talking about the uh, or following the USA men's and women's teams. Can you maybe just briefly tell us a little bit about how you became involved with the TV side of things, and is that something you might look at doing down the track? Well, it came about just through my agent, and they called me and offered it to me, and I, and I jumped on it because uh, it was a great opportunity for me, and um, it was the 20th anniversary of the, of the Dream Team, and, and I got a chance to go to the Olympics again and took my whole family with me, so I just had a great time. And working working with Fox Sports was just an uh, unbelievable experience, and I loved every every moment of it. And um, you know, the best part was probably that my whole family got to go over to London with me. Yeah, definitely. And um, it's something that I, I enjoy doing, and I and I might do it again in the future. Yes. Well, some of the the interviews that I've seen mostly via YouTube because we don't get a whole lot of the uh, US coverage of TV stations here in Australia, but the interviews you did with players and also just some of the on-camera behind-the-desk talk was really uh, really good, and you can tell you're obviously a very well-spoken and knowledgeable person, so it came across through the TV as well. Good luck if that does happen down the track. Well, just thank you. Oh, sorry. No worries. Go ahead. I just said thank you, Adam. That's all. Okay, no problems. Do you mind just uh, updating the listeners on your future plans perhaps in relation to coaching because I know that last year or was it maybe very early this year you delved into a little bit of assistant coaching do you have any plans to get into coaching in the future and also if you do what level do you hope to aspire to well three years ago you know after 
after being out of the league for three or four years, I, like I said, was just missing the game so much. Yeah. That I said, I, that I said, I got to get back on the court. So I decided to uh, open up the basketball academy, mm-hmm. and I started working and training kids and uh, doing clinics and camps, trying to uh, help kids become better basketball players. And I've had a blast doing it for the last three years. It's called Christian Leitner Basketball Academy. Mm-hmm. And um, I go all over the world pretty much to do it. I've been to Canada four or five times doing it. Um, I've been out to San Francisco and Minnesota and Michigan and Georgia and all over Florida. So just having a blast doing it. And um, I'm going to Denver, Colorado uh, in the beginning of January to do a, a weekend session. Yeah. And it's just... You know, my motivation is I love the game, I want to be on the court, and I want to give back. And what I get from it is uh, much bigger because um, to to help a kid out and to see him get better. And, you know, there's a few kids who their their mothers texted me, uh, you know, a few weeks ago and said, oh, he made the varsity and we're so happy. And you see kids getting better. So uh, to see them picking up the skills that you're teaching them and getting better is very rewarding. So I love doing it. And um, and so I, like I said, I have the academy going and me and my, my director of development, we just, we call people and set clinics up and weekend, we call it Leitner's Basketball Weekends. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have fun and I work with the kids and try to try to get them better. That sounds very good. So um, that was going to be part of my next question was to find out a bit more about your basketball uh, training academy. So that's great. Uh, do you mind just just before we end the chat, and I really do appreciate again chatting with you. Can you just perhaps fill us in on uh, how people can get in contact with you through what sort of social media and things like that, please, Christian? Well, thanks, Adam. I really appreciate it. People can uh, follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Leitner B Ball, mm-hmm. and they can they can go to my website to learn all about the academy and testimonials and pictures and everything's on there. Uh, my website is LeitnerBball.com. Yeah. And and then they can also go to my Facebook page, which is Christian Leitner Basketball Academy. And uh, I think that's it. Yeah. But um, it's a lot of fun. And um, I got, I'm going to Cincinnati this weekend to do a clinic. And like I said, then I'm going to Vail the first weekend of January. Yeah. And it's a, it's a lot of fun. Sounds like you're keeping very busy and, and be able to fit some time in your busy schedule to chat to somebody over in Australia who's just a big basketball fan. It just means the world to me. So thanks again, Christian. And it's been a pleasure chatting with you. And I wish you all the very best in the future with whatever you do. And yeah, it's been a real honor chatting. So thanks again. Well, thanks, Adam. And the last thing is I just wanted to say that, yes, I did coach uh, in the Development League last last spring. Yes. With, with the NBDL with the Fort Wayne Mad Ants, and it was just awesome. Uh, working with some high-level players again for a few months was a great opportunity for me. I loved it. Yeah. And um, I'm definitely considering uh, coach, coaching jobs um, in, the, in the league and at the college level. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Hopefully I'll get that opportunity, and, and if not, then I'll just keep doing what I am doing with my own academies. Yeah, no no doubt. And obviously you had some incredible mentors as far as coaching goes with Coach K and Lenny Wilkins, and obviously they were two of the probably main role models that you could look up to throughout your career, I guess. 
Yep, yep. My father, Coach K, my high school coach, Chuck Daly, Lenny Wilkins. Um, a lot of good coaches that I had. Yeah, excellent. All right, well, Christian, thanks very much. It's been great chatting with you. Okay, uh, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues, inallairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallairness. Please visit the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallairness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.